Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I am joined by Dan Madigan and Daniel Connolly. We're going to talk a little bit about the current state of UConn football, uh, but then we're also going to take a fun look into the past. And yes, folks, believe it or not, there used to be some fun with UConn football. What's has not been so fun, however, has been the Huskies' performance so far this season. The, sh- the really short way to put it is they are not good, uh, Dan and Dan. And they are uh, – I was talking uh, with JP in, in an interview we'll run later, but uh, or an interview that uh, ran on his podcast. But uh, I was kind of starting to say, you know, expectations were low going into this season but we're starting to be at the point where it's it's we have to start talking about okay is is this year's team not even meeting those really low expectations that we had for them uh and you guys starting to feel something similar yeah i totally agree the usf loss was not even close to the worst loss of the season because at least the Illinois game, you could write off as they actually played decently well for their standards. You had a young quarterback that looked good, and Illinois still a Big Ten team. And then even the two losses, I think you could write off as just getting beat on the road pretty badly by good teams. But we talked about it that there's there we thought there was a chance that UConn could beat USF, and it didn't really seem that far off. And then UConn just came out and completely laid an egg. I mean, the defense didn't even, the defense looked exactly like they looked last year. And that's a really bad sign. It just feels like the progress that we saw against Wagner, against Illinois, hasn't just stalled out. Like it feels like they're regressing now. And that's not something that should be happening in week five, week six with a bye week in there. Yeah, they just they just don't look very good. And looking through the schedule, uh, this game at Tulane this weekend, that's a loss. Home against Houston, also a loss. Uh, there's really only two more winnable games on the schedule. Uh, UMass on the 26th, uh, and then ECU at home on the on November 23rd. Um, due to some other teams, you know, Navy, Cincinnati, uh, trending in the right direction, and then, you know, Temple on the road to end the season. Uh, just the way this team is playing, it doesn't look like there's really any, you know, only two more winnable games on the schedule. And uh, frankly, UMass, which seemed to be a gimme two, three weeks ago with the way UConn was playing, doesn't seem to be that way anymore. UMass is, is putting up points. They can score a bunch in a hurry and UConn still can't seem to do anything right on either side of the ball. So uh, it's, it's pretty frustrating. And, you know, another one win season is definitely a problem. And UConn's, you know, kind of tied and, and stuck with Etzel for better or for worse for another season or two, probably anyways, for a myriad of reasons. But um, it's definitely going to be interesting if this team goes 1-11, which I think is, you know, not super likely, but it's definitely in play. And what the reaction will be to that heading into a season of independent football. So, yeah, I mean, before the season, if we're talking about times where we're thinking about potential wins. I don't think that list has changed all that much, but I am disappointed with the way the Indiana loss uh, and the South Florida loss look and, um, you know, just what is beginning to look like the lack of a 
lack of a plan uh, for Randy Edsel. Um, you know, something we discussed on the last podcast, just about how you could show a little transparency and let us know kind of what's going on with the team a little bit better. And, uh, you know, especially in a scenario where things aren't going so great, this other stuff that you can share with us is the way that, that, you know, people can kind of stay, um, stay up to date on what's going on with the team and, and what developments that are positive. Cause, cause Randy Etzel goes up and he just keeps saying, I see it out there. I see it out there. And it just kind of, to me, it reminds me of Bob Diaco saying that all the time. I see it. I see it. You know, I know we just lost 37 to 10, but believe me, they were, they were much better out there. You know, um, I, uh, I think UConn will still have a chance at, at UMass and that's going to be the real, you know, test of the season. So uh, just kind of like last year, it's like, no matter what the circumstances are, you want UConn to be able to beat UMass. And now they're having, uh, they're in a first year with a new head coach. Uh, so there's really no excuse, I think, from UConn's perspective. They're in the same situation that UConn was in, uh, you know, two years ago. And uh, developmentally should be ahead, you know, given, given what a school that is in, in, similar, uh, in a similar area and situation as us is. So... Uh, it's it's going to make that UMass game a pretty big one, uh, and I don't know. I I um, I feel like the defense is getting better, but the the offense to me was the big problem as of late. I really didn't like the play calling, and I know you you know there was just a lot left to be desired. I think on on that front especially. Yeah, I think UMass is a must-win game. I think there's absolutely zero excuse, regardless of anything, for losing to this UMass team, which is utter and total garbage. And that's saying something about the state of UConn's program, because UConn is still a step above UMass, and it might be on the road, but UConn absolutely has to win that game, and it probably shouldn't be close. So one thing about USF... You know, again, I I think we've seen enough of what looks like progress from the defense to kind of acknowledge also that um, no matter what kind of uh, uh, challenges or disarray USF might be in, uh, they still have a massive talent advantage on UConn, and I think that's what really just played out. They have they have the size and the speed. They're not, uh, you know, they're not a good team, but uh, they're, you know, they're they're really bad by USF standards. Uh, unfortunately, where UConn is right now, they're still quite a bit better, and that's just, you know, I think that plays out just if you look at where they are in S and P, uh, about thirty spots higher. So, uh, ultimately, things like that are just still going to happen when you are at this much of a talent disadvantage. Um, one thing I just, that just hit me, maybe Randy Edsel is saving it all for UMass because we're just thinking about the future. We're focused on the independence and these are basically, these are all non-conference games for us. And there's one conference game this year with fellow independent UMass for all of the marbles. Is that maybe how Randy Edsel is looking at his season realistically? That's a galaxy brain take, but I totally respect it. 
I mean, it would be the craziest thing that he's done, honestly. And, you know, there's a lot of bad tape out on UConn. There's not any good tape. So could really throw them off, uh, the Minutemen off when they come play the Huskers, when they go to play the Huskers. That's the only thing I can think of, right, is that they're saving it all strategically for this big, big game uh, at UMass. Uh, other than that, they're not trying to show anything until then. Plot twist. Steve Krajewski's clavicle isn't actually broken. <laughs> he doesn't have to reveal injuries. Yeah. So he can make them up, too. Have we actually seen a photo of Krajewski after surgery or anything? I, I saw him in a sling. Okay, but... Just a sling, though. Oh, yeah, I can, wow. I can put a sling on. Wow, I just walked right into that. <laughs> I think Dan the uh, sheep Madigan. I think there's some, you know, I think we're going to see some magic in that UMass. That I mean that that would be the only excuse I guess for not uh trying something creatively offensively to try and win a game uh or at least just generate some excitement. You know, the other thing is again, for whatever reason, thousands of fans show up to this and many many dozens more watch on TV, I'm sure. Uh so just just give fans something to feel good about. Uh, Watch, they're going to come out and pull a Bob Diaco and only run the ball straight up the middle of the entire game against UMass. That would be good, I think. It would be a different look. They wouldn't see it coming. Amon's right. <laughs> I think bust up, maybe bust out the triple for the UMass game. Where's Luke? Call him <laughs> Luke. Luke and I have been spearhead, spearheading that take. It's, I mean, it is. I don't hate it. It's not the worst idea. No, and there's actually tons no. of there's tons of high schools in the area that run that offense. So you literally can't get worse. <laughs> well, Randy would get the uh, he'd get a time of possession bonus if we went to the option, right? Oh my god, that'd be bonus city for him. I was thinking about that. I think that whole the whole bonus thing, which I know we we already have our take, and I think we all agree that. You know, in the grand scheme, it is a weird contract, but in the grand scheme of things, he makes so little money that it really doesn't matter. But I think exactly. that that contract is just there to throw all the like <laughs> national reporters off the scent of how bad UConn is. Like they're so busy tweeting about his contract incentives that they don't care that, you know, they lost by 26 to the worst USF team in the last 25 years. That's all press is good press. I've been sniffing that one out. I, I finally got around to that one this week. <laughs> It is, I mean, it is insane because it's like, listen, dudes, Ch Charlie Weiss is being paid $1 million a year still from two different schools. You right. want to talk about what's wrong with college sports and the coaches being paid? It's not Randy Edsel's $2,000 bonus. Are you? It's insane. Right. Like Nick Saban probably like has some booster dropping off a $2,000, $2,000 cash in a briefcase of like unmarked bills outside his house every Monday. You know, it's like just all that stuff is flying around. Randy's just the one that is getting it through the school. Taking a lot of heat for making, well, yeah, we, we don't need to, to dive into that, but uh, stay strong, Randy. And, uh, you know, don't rule out the possibility of seeing a completely new offense on October 26th at UMass. They actually should hype it up, you know, like a movie, the new offense because uh, so far it's been super boring. And it's been a really brutal season, 
just as a whole so far, I would say even again, less, less good than we would have expected. We decided that because this year's football is not fun, we'll talk about some of the old football, which uh, was not much better, but was, was less fun. more fun. <laughs> we can read that quote from Randy Edsel. Or no, that, that should be saved for later. Which quote from Randy? Uh, um, not from Randy Edsel, but about... Connecticut has always been an interesting foil. <laughs> you can't match teams with sheer talent, but they play smart, close to the best football, and never beat themselves. Can't relate to that anymore. <laughs> That really was our brand, though, for that, a little bit. That was a good, yeah. It, it look, it got them far. You knew what you were gonna get, like you knew what they were gonna turn in every week. The for for better or for worse. The glory days. It's hilarious because the glory days kind of sucked. <laughs> well, like in the grand scheme of things, like they were great for us, but like our best season, we went like seven and five, and that was like amazing. So the best season was like nine and four. Yeah. Yeah. That was 2010. We were were lit with Dan Orlowski. We were unbelievable. (laughs) And and the other thing is that, you know, these are years, literally years eight and nine in FBS. You know, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. We went eight and five, three years in a row. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I don't know if this is true, but didn't, and I'm sure it's been eclipsed now, but I'm pretty sure UConn had the record for like most most wins in like a five like in first five years of becoming FBS or something like that. Like it was it was crazy. That seems legit. Dude, yeah. Dynasty. Going nine eight eight eight. Damn. <laughs> okay, so maybe they weren't. But like like it wasn't an appealing brand of football to watch. It, it wasn't and honestly people were calling for Randy Etzel to be fired. Also right? Why does it feel like every win in program history involves like either the cold or the rain? <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's Connecticut football. Awesome. Global warming ruined it. The global warming has ruined UConn. <laughs> Wait, oh my God. I need to drop that take. <laughs> global warming has been hurting UConn football. That's a headline. <laughs> I like it. That's the podcast title. That could be the podcast. Thing, yeah. <laughs> Global warming and the connection. Actually, I lied. That Tulane game was the worst game I ever watched. Seven yeah, that's three. like by far the worst. Yeah. I've it got... wasn't even an interception, right? It was a scoop and score? It was an interception. Yeah, it was a pick. Uh, I have okay. some stats from that game too, though, and it's pretty incredible. That was like a punt. You know, the, but it, the, the Jamar Summers interception, it was like a punt, basically. The throw. I went on yeah. ESPN to um, like just get the stats from that, and their first highlight that they have is a two-yard first down run in the fourth quarter. <laughs> That's their like go-to highlight for the game. I watched that entire game. I did too. Same. I'm pretty sure that's when I was covering the football team, and I remember at one point I was keeping track of how many quarters they went without an offensive touchdown. <laughs> pretty Maybe. sure it was like, it was between, yeah, it was between like six and nine quarters. <laughs> uh, one right, there was one wide receiver catch for UConn in that game. <laughs> that's honestly, that's more than I thought there would have been in that game. <laughs> to be compl- I'm being completely honest. In that you, you know who was game? tied for the team lead of catches? Hold on, hold on. Oh, my God. Uh, I got nothing. Josh Mariner. Oh, nailed it. 
Arkel Newsom, Mariner, and Tommy Myers all had two catches. Uh, Alec Bloom say, and Hergy had one. I was going to say Newsom, actually. Uh, I know we touched on it last pod, but we have to talk about that game where the conflict game where Diaco just refused to throw the football. No, that was USF. <laughs> that was USF. We did talk about it. Oh, right, right. Oh, yeah, that that was, We can uh, absolutely bring that up. That was USF in his first season. Right. So it that really – Really rainy. So I wrote that article about the Yukon USF history and and that was the game that happened that <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. The quotes from that game were unbelievable. I think it was Neil was like, So you decided not to pass, but but USF still passed. Like <laughs> what was well, up with that? Wasn't it something to do with like Tim Boyle was hurt, and we only had him and Whitmer. And Whitmer got like lit up on the second play of the game, and I think that's what caused Diaco to just cut it because we didn't have another quarterback. No, so uh, it was Casey it was Cochran. Casey Cochran. No, that was Go. after Casey Cochran retired. Um, yes. Yeah, because Cochran, because Cochran never played for Diaco. He played one game. That's what I was saying. Casey Cochran did play for Diaco. One game, 2014. BYU, he got his last concussion, yeah. dressed for Stony Brook, and then didn't play the rest of the year. Okay. Because my hot take is that UConn could have gone to a bowl in 2014 if Casey Cochran was stayed healthy. Dude, Casey Cochran was such a gamer. He was good, too. He was, like, legitimately awesome. He was t- – okay. <laughs> okay, he was better than every other quarterback that we've had the last – he was better than Pindell. No, he, no, he was not. That's if David Pindell had any semblance of a competent team around him, he could have dragged them to like seven wins. There is no. Cochran threw for like a thousand yards in three games. In right. in three uh, garbage time games against three of the worst teams in the American that year. If you put David Pindell on basically any team post two thousand seven, and they might actually win like ten or eleven games. Anyway, I am not a I am not a hater of Casey Cochran, but I think, uh, you know, did I come in a little too hot there? Was, no, no, you came in at the right amount of heat. Uh, Casey Cochran, I'll put it this way: Casey Cochran has more Bryant sheriffs in him than he does uh, David Pindell. I'll put it that way. Look, I yeah, sheriffs was good too. Sheriffs was good too. I love. Yeah, sheriffs. I think Cochran was better than sheriffs, but I yes, love yes. sheriffs. Yeah, I'd go to war for sheriffs. Same, but he also kind of sucked like his first and second year. But he was just so much better than anything oh, else. Oh no! We we had third, yeah. Oh my god. Aman, are you watching the Nats game? No. What's happening? Are, are the Nats? Kershaw going? just gave up. I know you're not a baseball guy, but Kershaw <laughs> just gave up back-to-back home runs to blow the lead. Oh my and gosh! That's a Kershaw thing. <laughs> go Nationals. Attitude. I always say. So, Anthony had that tweet about the top, you know, how the quarterbacks have been a revolving door since Dan Orlovsky. So, what, what, do you, what do we think the top, like, three or four UConn quarterbacks have been since Orlovsky? I think we just mentioned them. It's, it's Pindell, Sheriffs, and Cochran. One, two, well, Tyler Lorenzen was really, really good. Ah, uh, true. There were some good teams with Tyler Lorenzen. Was Tyler Lorenzen good, or did he have a good team around him? He had a Bull. really good team around him, including the best, some of the best running backs to ever come through UConn. Yeah, right. Like, not, not there's anything wrong with him. Again, 
Brian Sheriffs had Noel Thomas and traffic cones for an offensive line. <laughs> like every single game was Brian Sheriffs just running for his running life. for his life. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> what about Matt Bonislawski? <laughs> Someone who's a really Matt good Bones. video editor could do an entire movie that is just <laughs> game film of Brian Sheriffs running for his life. That's conflicted part four, the epilogue. And then just getting like brutalized by four <laughs> defenders at once. And then just getting up and doing it again. The Three next yards time. after the line of scrimmage. Because well, he also wouldn't slide for yeah. any yeah. And then the first time oh my he God. slides against to. Houston and he gets his head taken off by Landon Roberts. I thought he was, I, I'm not even joking. I thought he was dead. I thought he died. <laughs> It, that was like one of the worst like real time hits I I've seen or like was close to seeing because I was I was in yeah. the box. Because it was, was sliding so down bad like that. I agree. I, yeah, the, because he was sliding down like that, and it was just like, wow, you're taking the full brunt of it, one foot away from with your head one foot away from the ground. Uh, it was not good. It was not good. That that season was just an entire twilight zone. Can you guys actually guess the? teams that they beat to get bowl eligible because i could only guess four of them so i i know they opened with villanova yep uh, tommy myers dove into the end zone yeah and i but they were uh they were losing early as as they are wont to do against fcs teams i believe they were losing early then they beat army in week two i remember that and then i know that they lost I don't know exactly, but I know I could say the rest of the wins for sure. Uh, well, after Army was that incredible nine to six loss to Missouri. Oh man, that, that ended with the uh, fake field goal from Bob Diaco. These were fun times. These were fun as hell. Yeah, it it was never you know a shootout per se, but there was always weird stuff going on with the Diaco games and. We, I've said this before, but we took it for granted. Like, we took the press conferences for granted. We took the weird stuff that would happen. Like, I think Diaco ran, he ran at least <laughs> two, possibly three different fake field goal plays in that one game. And one of them almost worked. But I know he ran at least two completely different ones. And he ran a few other ones throughout that season. So, I think I was trying to keep track when I was covering the team, but he had at least three or four fake fake field three or four fake field goal plays in his playbook at all times. And every and that's single probably overkill, but they never worked. And every single one was like blatantly obvious when they were about to run it. Like they Tommy Myers just, walking off the sideline into the field of play, like <laughs> right before the ball the ball was snapped. <laughs> well there was one of those plays where like the other team didn't notice Tommy Myers, but UConn seriously took like fifteen seconds to snap the ball. Mm-hmm. And like it took so long for the other team to notice that it was like the defender hit Myers as the ball got to him. Yep. That's how long it took him to notice, which just shows you how long it took them to snap the ball in the first place. Yeah, they would have had it if they snapped it quickly. I, re- I remember that. He was wide open. Look, you guys see a bunch of bad fake field goals. I see UConn lacing them up. Lacing them up and and going toe to toe with an SEC power on the well, road. The best part about Bob Diaco's fake field goals is <laughs> is that other places on special teams he just totally like ignored. Like he decided not to return punts because it was too much of a risk. 
but literally taking points off the board, trying fake field goals that didn't work. <laughs> that was completely acceptable. And they had a good kicker too. Bobby, it was Bobby Puyol, right? I mean, he That's was correct. no joke. He, yeah. he was a legitimate kicker. Probably one of the best UConn's ever had. We just, we do have good kickers. Yeah. Um, Puyol was nasty. Yeah. Yeah, he was great. Shout no out Bobby Puyol. I'm sure he's listening. Puyol Although, is the he, reason UConn won a bunch of games that year. Yes. He, it also wasn't really his fault, but like he had a knack for like the opening touchdown, whenever that would be. Like, he was saying, always blocked. It was always blocked. The extra oh, point was yeah. always blocked. Like, yes. The Villanova game, I'm pretty sure they scored a touchdown and then the extra point promptly got blocked. Yeah, and he had one blocked against Army as well. I'm pretty sure it was like the first three games. Got blo- I'm pretty. Yeah, they, there was at least three or four blocked XPs that year. Other than that, nasty. Anyways, uh, you have two wins so far in 2015. You have Army and Villanova. So, so then they beat UCF. Yep. Tulane. They'll beat Tulane, uh, but that's not the that's not the order. Uh, they oh. beat they beat East Carolina in a big win at home. I yep. remember that that game. They wore the gray alternates. Oh, that's which, right. Was that like Friday dope. night? It was a Friday night game. Yeah, Arkel Newsom ran for a long touchdown or something. Oh, yep, yep. He had the, he had a yeah. I Wait, was that, that one in the rain too? No, no, that that was good weather. Arkel Newsom, I feel so bad for him. The coaching staff totally killed his career. They they ruined the end of his career. That's Ed, that was Edsel. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Like the everybody ruined his career. Oh, like, oh, well, that's called. That's called UConn ruined his career. Yes, correct. That's, that's my take. Oops. They had Ron Johnson and Arkel Newsom, which is like a perfect pair for like a, a first and second down between the tackles back and then like a third down back. But inexplicably, they would run Arkel Newsom between the tackles and then like try and throw it to Ron Johnson. If you're trying to say that the offensive coordinator, Frank... What was his last name? Verducci. Frank Verducci. (laughs) If you're trying to say that the offensive coordinator, Frank Verducci, was not good, you would be correct. National champion, Frank Verducci. What year did they fire him? Was it the year after that they finally fired him? They fired him in in Diaco's last Second season. Okay, yeah, because then Diaco got himself fired by not accepting Jerry Kill as his defensive or his offensive court. That's wild. If he would have probably been here another year, right? Uh, It's hard to know. I still can't believe he didn't get another year as bad as that last season was. I still thought that they, just because of the way the buyout worked and everything, I really thought he was going to get that, that one more year and it would have been amazing. It would have been unbelievable. I mean, like amazing. How much worse could things be? (laughs) Right. Well, I guess we found out. However, do not forget, here are the, here are the last four Bob Diaco games. Four, <laughs> I know it's coming. 41 to 3. Uh, that was ECU. At ECU, I was at that game. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you got the double whammy of having to watch that and also having to be in Greenville, North Carolina. I, I have said this before. I had a good time there, actually. So I'll just 
that was a, that was not that was the least of my problems to, <laughs> to be completely honest um that was it i you know east carolina that's when you're like okay bob diaco is losing control of everything uh i believe that is when in between this these two games east carolina and temple is when uh, uh verducci is relieved of his duties uh the running backs coach is elevated to offensive coordinator and then they make the decision to play donovan williams at quarterback uh the the goal here is to win the final three games and and somehow get into bowl eligibility right uh burning a red shirt because that rule did not exist at the time so uh burns the red shirt makes all these changes trying to win three games to end the season <clears throat> 21 nothing lost to temple 30 to nothing loss at boston college went to that game as well same uh, bob diaco called it a close one uh and uh we all just moved on with our lives literally, you know, literally he was just spewing nonsense at that point that was also like a really bad bc team like that was before they had their little resurgence recently like that team was not good and they throttled uconn right it was boston college so the team was not good but yes i completely embarrassing loss and you know again uconn fans showed out for it as they always do in boston ice must beat bu later that night though so that that was fun uh and and by the way they had gone obviously this entire time without a touchdown because they went three entire games scoring three total points but then we're able to put up 13. Oh, wait, Tulane, uh, again, not a good Tulane team that year. Drops 38 on UConn at home, season finale on senior day. You could have ended things on a good note. You know, I, I think literally if he wins that game, he might not have been fired. Yeah. If he wins that yeah. game, if it's 38-13 UConn and they show up, but again, there is – someone has got to look into the – well, I think we kind of know, but the turning points of that season, what happened? Because, again, let us not forget, we were psyched about the Bob Diaco era. Yeah. I wonder how different things go if they win that Navy game. Like, genuinely. Yeah, the Navy game is a catalyst, right? Like, that's definitely where the foundation is crumbling. 100%. Even though, again, beat, beats, beats Virginia, 13-10. Huh. Mm-hmm. Next week, but you know they they lost to Syracuse by one touchdown. That's that's not a bad performance, right? Like yeah, but that game was never actually close. I don't yeah, that it. was the game where it was like Jamar Summers on Etatau and Etatau just ran deep every yeah, single time. Threw it deep every time. Two hundred seventy recruiting uh, receiving yards. <laughs> and the coaching staff literally just sat there and was like, "Well, I don't know how to stop him. Let's not put a safety over on him or anything." But okay, but but again, think about where UConn football is today, and also where yeah. it was by the end of that season. You know, like there's still UConn was still doing tackle football, right? Whereas by the end of the season, they were getting exercise. Uh, loss at Houston, a very good Houston team that year. They were ranked sixth, sixth in the country at the time. Beat Cincinnati twenty to nine. All right, you know we're playing ball. 
lose out, lose out South Florida, 42-27, kind of like what you guys were saying about Syracuse. That was another game where that, that game was not that close, even as that score would indicate. But I think when they lost to UCF also, that was the beginning, you know, they were just they – were, they were making so many mistakes in that UCF game that year. Uh, and, again, we were seeing a lot of mismanagement. We were starting to see the 20th sign of, of mismanagement from Diaco or the staff that was starting to cost them the game. And then it spirals completely into the ECU – Temple BC Tulane situation. So something something was afoot. I agree. Navy is the is the beginning of the end, but something else happened because they still won. They still won two good wins after that. It's mind blowing that Bob Diaco didn't know how many downs there he had against Navy, and That's... then wouldn't admit it. <laughs> Literally, the head football coach doesn't know what down it is. That's spectacular. I'm just recapping in my mind what I lived in that moment. And I'm not even sure if I'm all spot on. Okay. Oh, I've, I've watched the Navy post game, I think, more than the conflict one, just because it's a little bit quicker. <laughs> and it's like a different type of meltdown. The meltdown, honestly. <laughs> We don't have time to talk about the meltdown. Wasn't there not to go too deep into it, but like isn't there wasn't there actually like a suggestion to play a game on Nickelodeon recently? 100%. Oh, no, no. Yep. Uh um, Viacom. Uh yes, that really might happen, but that was like a yeah. sports business journal rumor. We t- Yeah, a Viacom crossover, right? We tweeted about it. Yep. Well, yeah, you don't get better Bob Diaco coverage <laughs> anywhere in the world. <laughs> We should throw that in our Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs> world's the world's foremost Bob Yako blog. We didn't even talk about the Tulane game. Yeah, yeah, we got to get back to 2015. You, we, you mentioned the ECU game, so you have ECU in ECU. 2015. Then I think it's ten, Tulane. Tulane, the seven to three, amazing. That's what I said. Yeah, yeah. that was yeah. after ECU. Oh yeah, I had the order mixed up. I think genuinely that was the worst football game I've ever watched. Strong agree. So there are so many candidates. Again, if if you were at, which you were, but Boston College, thirty to zero as a whole, like not from a UConn perspective, just in general, like totaling the the total of it, it was just right because nobody did anything. Okay, here's stats for you, UConn. 227 yards of total offense. They actually had 146 rushing yards, which is seems way too high. That is way too high. Want to guess how many yards uh, Tulane had on total offense? 76. Uh, close-ish. 140. 90. Oh. So less rushing yards than UConn had, but total yards. Um, Bryant Sheriffs went 8 of 19 for 81 yards, but ran for 16 of 79. Hell yeah. Uh, th- this is how the possessions broke down. Each team punted 11 times. Each team threw one pick, and Tulane was the only team was the only one to actually score on a possession on offense. They kicked a field goal. Oh, and, and then, I'm sorry. And then UConn had a punt, uh, a kick blocked too. So that's that was just an atrocity of a game to witness. Yeah, that was not football. That was a punt. Punt, pass, and kick contest. 
Imagine if Jamar Summers, like Jamar Summers had to do a decent amount of work to get into the end zone. Like it wasn't just like he stepped in front of a pass and took it back 67 yards. Like he was weaving like in oh, between like other players. Like if he doesn't get into that end zone, Tulane wins that game three, nothing. He, uh, it was like a punt. That was like a, you know, a complete duck. And he was, it looked more like a punt return than, than an interception return. Yeah. Sure. And again, would not have made it if it was not pouring rain able to like weave around the field like that with everyone kind of running at rain speed. So the weather was not great when uh, Houston visited for win number six of that bowl season. And wow. That was another Twilight Zone game. That was was an incredible game. (laughs) Houston was undefeated. (laughs) That team was like, they were talking about that team like, like, the can they make the college football playoff type team? Yeah, and they lost good. UConn football with their backup quarterback. <laughs> and future NFL quarterback Tim Boyle, of course, was playing. Garrett Anderson was playing fullback that the game. Huskies. The third string quarterback. And then who among us? The trick play for the touchdown. That should have been a pick six. Come on, it was. <laughs> Very nearly a pick six. <laughs> and that was the Tim Boyle throw, right? Boyle was tossed it to Anderson. Yes. Tim Anderson Boyle's greatest game. moment and yeah. as a Husky. Didn't they give up like a kick return on the next play, like on the ensuing kickoff though? Mm. Or was that a different kickoff? Because they gave up like a – they like took a good lead and then immediately gave up a kickoff return for a touchdown. Immediately. That is correct. I'm looking at the scoring summary in that. So, like, the single greatest moment in UConn football's history this decade was followed immediately by a kick return for a touchdown. Like, totally killed all the excitement that you had. Hey, man, 9.36 left in the game, and UConn ran out that clock. It was like the last nine minutes of the miracle on ice, just taking shots. (laughs) But the Huskies were able to hold them off. So that was it. That was win number six. They went to the bowl. Uh, I don't think that was the last game of the season. No, they got smoked by Temple the week after. Interesting. Because Sheriff still wasn't back, so it was Tim Boyle. Yeah, that was that game was a mess. Sheriff's laces him up for the St. Petersburg Bowl. I went to that as well. Had a great time. Didn't he have a broken hand in that? Me? Or something? Oh, him. No. <laughs> Thank you for your concern. Um, I think he broke his hand during that game and finished it? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, something like that. That sounds about right. Unfortunately, they did lose to Marshall, but I do remember Bobby Puyol kicking in a field goal off the crossbar. I just remember the St. Pete's turf. (laughs) The just 400 different colors that they had. What a dream. What a dream. Think about the mind space we were in that offseason. I faked an illness to get out of a track meet to watch that game. That's <laughs> that. That gives me an illness right now. <laughs> but, well, no, that tells you about what where the state of the program was. I was really excited for that game. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing again, we're talking this off season. We're like, oh man, twenty sixteen. How do you follow up six wins? We're thinking eight. We're thinking eight, maybe. 
and uh, unfortunately it didn't work out so well. UConn is, of course, in its last season in official play in the Power Six Conference known as the AAC. Uh, and with that means the end of a couple of really fun rivalries. Uh, of course, I mean the civil conflict. Never a bad time to talk about the conflict. Uh, of course, we can always talk conflict. I think we are, uh, we can always agree that we can talk conflict pretty much any time. Wait, so what are we counting as the first conflict game? Are we counting about the one mm. in the rain at Rentschler where Diaco... Whatever's on the trophy. After the game? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly I think right. part of the lore of the conflict is, is counting the UConn win <laughs> that was before the creation of the trophy. Like, I feel like if you don't, it doesn't like capture the, the full essence of what the conflict was. So you have to count that first game that UConn won. Okay, so it's people forget. Bob did invent the rivalry that day. Yep. <laughs> so he said that in the press conference. So he said, and and actually, Dan, we can grab. Can you grab the audio of this from the conflicted documentary? Uh, absolutely. He he says, maybe I'll make with my own money a trophy, and I'll put an orange and the nutmeg, and it, uh, he literally says it that day in the press conference, and people laugh. <laughs> the, 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 and then he was serious. And he was turned out he was dead ass serious. So And the best thing was that wasn't like the last game of that season. Like that was homecoming, right? Or it was around homecoming. So he basically sat on it for at least three or four months and then was like, All right, off seasons, time to make that trophy I've been i I've been waiting on. Um yeah, it was at that game. That was the coldest I have ever been in a game. It that was, was like, brutal. That was like 33 degrees and raining, which proves my point that like all the biggest wins in UConn history have either been freezing cold or raining. That one just hit both of them. Yeah. So I, I think we agree that this one counts. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Was this where they threw like three interceptions in the first half? Yeah, that sounds right. And then Deshaun Fox was our most successful quarterback since Dan Orlovsky. Yeah, he yes. ran he ran a touchdown in, right? Yeah, and then we still almost blew it at the end. Like we had like a three possession lead at the end of the game and um like we tried to hand it to UCF and they just said no, we're good. So yeah, the rivalry starts in twenty fourteen. I think Bob Diaco made that extremely clear. He also added the 2013 score. So it actually... After getting pressured about it. After getting pressured about it because Bob decided Bob decided that it would start in 2014 when he first made the trophy, when he first hustled over to the Glastonbury Trophy Shop and got this thing built. Uh, in 2013, he, put, he added the 2013... 62-17. Yikes. Bad loss for... Blake for Bortles was there for the start of the conflict. On that day. So Blake Bortles. Wow. NFL legend. We Blake should get Bortles. him on the pod. <laughs> I wonder if he knows that he was retroactively added to the conflict after uh, Bob Diaco faced some heat for the scores he put on the trophy. So, yeah, UCF, UCF wins the first one. 
62-27. The next year, you know, nobody gave UConn a lot of credit, uh, and, and rightfully so. They were really, really bad. But they did grab their second and final win of the season uh, against US UCF, and I guess officially – November 1st, 2014 is the official birth of the conflict. People don't really think about that date. They think about the day UConn tweeted the, the photo of the trophy. But I guess in reality, this is the real birth date because that, in that post-game press conference is when Diaco said that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So then, I mean, the... You know, let's let's take us back to memory lane. UConn gets everyone is making fun of UConn and Bob Diaco, and again, rightfully so, a little bit because of the execution of this uh, rivalry attempt. Uh, but and and you know, one of the big things where everyone's like, "Oh, UCF, so much better than UConn. How could they even feign to be rivals?" Well, the Huskies traveled. To Orlando on October 10th, 2015, and they crushed UCF 40 to 13, and they hoisted the conflict trophy on enemy territory. And I think the players had fun. I think they enjoyed that that big, big win, and and to raise the trophy. Yeah, I can. The photo of them holding the trophy with. I think it's Andreas Canapi, like in the middle of it, just <laughs> with the happiest look on his face. Like, I don't know if we've ever seen UConn football players that happy since like 2010. I think I know the photo you're talking about, and I believe it is actually center Brandon Vetri, uh, who is the one in that photo. Also had long hair. Big dude. Uh that, yeah, you know, in, a, in an era where UConn football players were not getting to experience very much excitement, um, Bob Diaco really gave the kids something, as, as he said he would, which you got to give him a lot of credit for. In the grand scheme of things, as stupid as it may have seemed, the conflict worked. It really did, and it can't be denied. I don't care what anybody says. It's just just facts. The conflict worked. We're still talking about it now. We don't even talk about Bob Diaco really anymore, but we're still talking about the conflict. We talk and about Bob Diaco. Yeah, we talk about Bob Diaco. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We do, but no, there's no such thing. But, I mean, we talk about the conflict a lot, but, nat- like, the national media it still talks about it. You know, UCF has even leaned into it uh, out of the past, you know, in the past year or so, so. Mm-hmm. It's something that, you know, made the last few UConn UCF games uh, remotely interesting because there was a trophy on the line, even though the trophy is lost and uh, UCF doesn't really care about it and they're much better than UConn now, but <laughs> there's still something to play for. Yeah, I think it's like, it's also like 10 times better that this happened without UCF's permission because <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because if it was like they're fighting for this stupid rivalry trophy, everyone would make fun of it for existing. But now at least UConn gets the credit for doing it on their own, if that's a thing. I think that's like, how Bob Diaco sees it. Yeah. But no, I totally agree with the take that it's been like 
has it's been arguably more so successful than Bob Diaco hoped it would be because it's outlived Bob Diaco. The other thing is that, of course, inarguably, it got more attention for this this UConn UCF football matchup than it otherwise would have. The part where he failed on it is the part where UConn was not good at football, where he really where he really broke the exec- on the execution of this was the part where the UConn part. stopped getting better at football and uh, th- there were no interesting games, but. If he wanted the attention, it was there. Yeah, no, the UConn-UCF game has probably gotten more coverage outside like the beat writers than every single other UConn football game combined since, I guess, 2010 again. And, right? and, and a good chunk of the entire conference, I would say, besides oh, yeah. a small handful of games. So, and, and by the way, in that massive spotlight, Bob Diaco delivered with a big win. Big win. And then totally blew it the next year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They 100% could have won that game the year after. I remember that game because I traveled very... I traveled like by air, by air, train, and bus, I think, to attend that game. Would 2016 be the final game of the conflict? Because that was the year that UCF wins and does not take the trophy back with it. <laughs> I think the conflict lives on. Yeah. The conflict's not the trophy. The cons- the conflict is the idea. It's the friends we made along the way. Yeah. So I think the conflict so right. lives on forever. It's always in our hearts. Conflicted part two coming. <laughs> Eventually. Later. <laughs> Listen, guys, making videos is hard. That took us forever. <laughs> it's not easy. And um, yeah, so, but we will get to it because I agree. I mean, it's, that's what makes college football fun. Bob Diaco was right about 55% of his argument, you know, in that, in that rant, including the fact that this is the kind of stuff that makes college football fun. So, yeah. Um, Are you including Nickelodeon in the part that was? Listen, right or not. That's, that's not a bad idea. I watched Nickelodeon as a kid. I liked sports as a kid. If it was sports on Nickelodeon, I might have watched some. I, yeah. The more that gets talked about, the better idea it, it seems. <laughs> like, in all honesty. Bob Diaco is going to look like a genius once this actually happens. The Sun Belt on Nickelodeon. I oh think. God. What if he's head coach at Louisiana Tech? Oh, my God. And they're on Nickelodeon. It's possible. Anything's possible. I the I think the best part though about that Nickelodeon part though was that was the exact moment you could see that he broke, like it it was like something inside him broke at that moment. I mean he he broke from the moment he said <laughs> in the beginning of his response. I'm just trying to keep my composure. I, 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 yeah, <laughs> I'm just I'm just trying to keep my composure. Oh man. <laughs> That is not a good sign. That is not a good opening salvo, Bob. Um, Unbelievable. Whew, so that was the UCF rivalry in a nutshell. We had a, the pleasure of of we have we do have audio from all three UCF head coaches during this time uh, <laughs> on the conflict. So uh, I think Heupel had the best reaction, though, right? 
<laughs> I, so I asked Typel at Media Day, and he definitely was versed. He, there's no doubt in my mind that he had a conversation with someone that, he, like this, this question might come up, and <laughs> there needs to be like a, a response because he was very calm, cool, and collected. He, I talked to him. It was the last question. I talked to him for like probably seven to eight, seven to ten minutes. Asked him a bunch of questions about the season opener, and then I, I threw that in at the end. And he just took it like a champ and, and fielded it with ease. So I think he had some, some prep and knew that it was coming. Um, but yeah, it, we, I, we do. I think we have every, every UCF coach yeah. speaking on the conflict, which, well, you know, wh- for the history books. It's important information to have. But whereas Scott Frost basically laughed in my face when I about <laughs> it. So. No, I got a real response from, from, uh, from Hubel. I can't remember what he said, though, but it was some good coach speak, and, and, and uh, he worked right around it. And George O'Leary's audio from it is honestly, it's legendary stuff. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, it's a conference game, so we care about it, but uh, I don't know if it's any special than any other game. Stuff for the history books, including what, if Bob Diaco gets proven right on the Nickelodeon bit, again, that's, that's a clip that will improve his his standing in the pillars of intellectualism i agree and honestly that's on us like if if the nickelodeon thing comes into vogue we have to do our best to blow that clip up because you know we we have given diaco a hard time on on this podcast and on the blog so i think that's the least we can do is to gas him up uh if one of his ideas makes it big i feel like it's only fair how amazing would it be if hurley like now creates a rivalry with like Creighton, <laughs> like some random school in the Big East that we have no history with that definitely isn't that good that we can just beat up on all the time. Because like having a rivalry with Xavier is not going to be fun for, until we're like good because they're really good. But like Creighton, come on, Xavier's not that good. I I love this idea. Actually, to be completely honest, I think we should yeah. just start a rivalry with Creighton. Because we already have yeah. the rivalries with the old schools. Yeah. But like, we have n- nothing in common with Creighton besides Doug McDermott robbing Shabazz Napier of the player of the year. I think that's a fantastic idea. That's definitely the best school, too. Please like, tweet we- at us your ideas for this trophy. Yeah, a design or a name or or some combination of all of that. That'd be pretty uh, good. Well, so that was the story of the conflict and Bob Diaco's wild and crazy tenure with the Huskies. We'll we'll revisit other uh, storied AAC histories uh, in future podcasts, but the Huskies will end their rivalry with Tulane. Uh, their conference rivalry, at least with Tulane this weekend. They're at New Orleans at uh, Yulman Stadium. That game will be at 345 on ESPNU. It's too bad. You know, I was, I was, I will say, obviously, of course, uh, totally on board with the move to and everything that UConn has done, but I am, I am disappointed. I didn't get a chance to go to New Orleans to see UConn play. I was thinking about going to this football game, but. Uh, ended up making other plans, but 
um, just kind of reminds me of something that we had always talked about with respect to New Orleans, which was why the heck did they not host a basketball tournament there? Yeah, that's definitely yeah. obscene for a conference that prides itself on being all over the country. You're going to stick it for the foreseeable future in Fort Worth. I literally don't know a single thing about Fort Worth at all, <laughs> besides JFK's assassination. And I feel like that's not the right thing to remember a city by. That was in Dallas. Oh, that was? Okay, so yeah. Fort Worth really has nothing. Yep. Tell me something about Fort Worth. And that's, I, I, I agree, Dan. That's the whole allure of the American. <laughs> you know, is having a, a school in all these major, major cities like, you know, Tulane in New Orleans, SMU in Dallas, you know, UConn near Hartford, all these major, you know, powerhouse cities. But um, it just sucks that there hasn't been an event in it, really any events in New Orleans. I feel like that would have been so much fun. Um, you know, Tulane isn't the main school in New Orleans per se, but, you know, they definitely ha- seem to have a big enough presence where, it would you know there'd be a good turnout uh and i definitely think there would be a better turnout in an event in new orleans than an event in dallas or in uh wichita kansas or somewhere else right just make it a fun event to go to and if you make it at a place that people you know fans of these teams travel i think they're forgetting that piece and it's not like it's very far if you're the florida schools or the texas schools to hop on that flight to new orleans and many probably live in other cities in the region that aren't too far away. Uh, and if, if there had been, I mean, just think about, you know, I think the women's tournament being at Mohegan, that's, that's, you know, as good as it gets, good luck finding anything close to that after we're gone. But uh, I think specifically the men's basketball tournament, you have a really good opportunity there and they've had some, real clunkers in my opinion in my opinion uh they were i don't have the chronological order but uh i believe it's been basically memphis hartford and orlando and the ones in memphis and orlando and even hartford none of them were really very well attended right some of the hartford ones were were pretty packed i remember being at xl and it was rocking but um I remember we had, when I was at the daily campus, we had writers at the Orlando ones. It was dead. Uh, I think the Memphis one ha- had its moments, but I, I can't remember, but I thought the Hartford ones were some of the higher attended uh, conference tournaments for, for the men, for the American anyways. Uh, well, I don't know if that's actually the case, but that's what I, I thought I remember hearing. That was because, yeah, so UConn fans showed up for right. – for those, you know, for those games. And because there was, yeah, Orlando was the worst I've ever seen. Uh, I was at that as well. Shout out Jalen Adams. Uh, they won that year. Uh, but the, um, that was the worst crowd I had ever seen just game over game. Like it was a completely empty, it was where the magic play. It was, it was, I would be really surprised if it was ever more than 15% full, I would say, in the crowd during those games. And that was literally three years removed from playing Big East tournaments at Madison Square Garden. Yikes. And then, yeah, I mean, Dickey's Arena in Fort Worth. That's like, again, to talk about the difference between Madison Square Garden 
it was just such a that's a the epitome of brutality as a friend of ours would say but um yeah could have used the men's tournament in new Orleans. there's still time for them uh i guess after this three-year run that they'll have with dickie's arena um but yeah i will say on the on the list of regrets from the american era besides wishing that yukon had won more games i wish I could have gone to a game at New Orleans. Well, if there is any uh, consolation, the women's Final Fours in New Orleans this year. Oh uh, yeah! Well, that'll be that's awesome. On the hopefully the Huskies can make it. Yeah, and I just gotta say, I know, I I think there hasn't really been a rivalry like the conflict with Tulane, but I think Tulane was, you know, I'd say it's been an an ally school for UConn. Like, you know, we had a good relationship. We have a good relationship with Fear the Wave. We were just on the podcast this week and JP's coming up later and uh, they have a great logo. They, they give us a hard time about not having lights for our baseball field. Um, I think the moment that I realized that the American was like truly not the best idea was when um, they, UConn played at the, I think it's Devlin Fieldhouse. And it was like a high school gym with like the grainy video with some, like someone in the bleachers doing the camera, I think for the game. And you kind of almost lost because that guy, Dylan Ositowski just like went nuts in the second half. Um, Also the site of the women's basketball team's closest win in the American. Yeah. Which that was, you know, truly incredible. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a great run with Tulane and, we didn't get an answer from Randy as to whether that rivalry will or that game, that series will continue in the future because uh, it seems like it's a little bit off topic based on the last, uh, based on last week's presser. But uh, I wouldn't mind playing some games with them in the future in, in one sport or another, especially like baseball. Yeah, baseball series could be fun. Yeah. Tulane's definitely the only other American school that I would even consider wearing like gear from but i would absolutely rock like an angry wave shirt once yes, we're gone same i would love an angry wave shirt or their, hat or anything their uniforms best, one of the best logos in sports their current uniforms are sweet you, you so have sad. to give them that uh to tell us a little bit more about the tulane perspective and uh the season they're having this year we did have jp gooderham from fear the wave so enjoy all right, we're pleased to be joined by J.P. Gooderham of the Tulane blog, Fear the Wave, a longtime AAC blogosphere compatriot of ours. Uh, J.P., thank you so much for joining and sharing some insight on, on Tulane for us this week. Good to be back. Yeah, I know. We were, we were just talking when we were talking about our podcast, but uh, we're coming down to the wire here in this, uh, this long legacy of, uh, of UConn and AAC football. So I, I think we're all shedding a tear for it and, and you know, we'll have a good matchup on Saturday. Well, you know, we will have a matchup on Saturday. Uh, you know, as we discussed, both teams will take the field and uh, some version of tackle football will be played. Uh, to just quickly get this year's matchup out of the way before we, we talk about the fun stuff, um, Tulane is good this year. Uh, tell us how that feels. Yeah, it's it's like just figuring out a way to square reality with with, you know, what everything else is telling you about what we've seen from Tulane in the past is, is so difficult. I mean, they, they had this, like uh, probably some, some folks saw it, but if you didn't, they had a uh, 21 point comeback a couple weeks ago against Houston in a, a Thursday night game that was just like absolutely bonkers. But then you, you kind of have this moment set in as a Tulane fan, which is like, okay, now is the time it's going to go really wrong. 
And, uh, and no, they went to Army, which, you know, a very solid team this year, took uh, Michigan to double overtime, really should have beat the Wolverines. And Tulane looked like a much better team. They had a 21-point lead uh, kind of late into the second half, and they got out of there with the win. So I think that, you know, one of the things for Tulane is that they're in a unique position because they're playing the best football that they've played since 1998. And I think that's just a matter of fact. But at the same time, the AEC is so deep this year. And I think that there's a lot of fan bases that should feel really good about their chances and probably somewhat justifiably so. So, um, again, just to kind of harp on, on be, uh, being good and how exciting that must be, uh, how, did, how did Willie Fritz do it? So what did he come in and do uh, that was different from his predecessors, you know, adapted to the situation? Well, what do you, you know, what do you give him the most credit for when it comes to the turnaround of the program? Wow, that is a really good question. And, and I think there's a few things that, that jumped to mind immediately. One thing that as we look at Willie Fritz, he's now in his fourth year, it's been a, a bit of a, a slow burn to some extent. I, I think that the, the biggest thing that I would give him credit for is that Tulane, and this I think is what he would say himself, when he came, Tulane did not have that many what he would call Division I players. So guys who would stack up against quality, uh, solid kind of three-star athletes that we see day in and day out in the AEC. And so as a result of that, if you looked at the way Tulane had played in the AEC, its first two seasons, they went three and nine and three and nine, very non-competitively. Uh, you know, I think the, the biggest thing you could point out is that the guys weren't there. So I think that his ability to come in and, and over time really sell a story of the program, uh, not just the recruits in Louisiana, but really recruiting the Southeast very effectively from Georgia to Texas. I think he's done an excellent job on that front. Uh, Tulane, according to 247, currently has the number one rated recruiting class in the AEC, which obviously some time left. But I think that the takeaway there is that he's getting a higher quality of, of athlete to take a look at Tulane and, and guys who really fit his system. And as a result of that, I think Tulane has more playmakers at you know wide receiver and at running back and some other positions on the team than we really had in, in maybe 21 years. So um, then this team in particular, uh, can you just quickly walk us through kind of st strengths and weaknesses uh, offensively and defensively? Sure. Starting on the offensive side of the ball, I think the thing that everyone would point out is going to be the run game. They currently rank number eight in FBS coming into this game in yards per carry with 6.1, and they do it with some style. I mean, there's just a lot of running backs in this team. Uh, Darius Bradwell, Amari Jones, uh, Stefan Hutterson, and, and Corey Dauphine is the, the speedster. He actually holds, I think, the Texas State record in the 200. And when he gets into open space, if you miss that first tackle, he's gone. And so you have these backs who really bring something different. And, and now I think the difference, because Tulane has had good backs, and, and they've actually had guys like Dontrell Hilliard who have gone on. He's playing for the Browns now. Uh, they've had good kind of NFL-quality backs before, but we really didn't figure it out offensively. And I think the thing that incoming offensive coordinator Will Hall uh, has really been able to integrate quickly and successfully is a more up-tempo style of play, moving away from some of the triple option traditions that we had uh, in the past. And I think running much different and interesting formations and schemes that have really created problems for opponents. Now, in terms of weaknesses, I think the passing game is developing and we've seen some signs of strength. And uh, Justin McMillan, the LSU transfer who has been starting at quarterback now for about a full season uh, after he took over the job midway through last year, he, he really, I think, does a great job making reads on when to run. I think with the passing game, you know, he's had some tough games this year. He looked good and he did a great job. I think it was one of his strongest performances against Army. But I think establishing that passing game is one of the challenges for the two-lane offense that really can drive some more success for the running game.
Wow. So you got you got good talent and uh, uh, innovative strategies. I wonder what that's like. Uh, so and then uh, defensively, how about on that side of the ball? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the things on defense is that they they they've been consistently solid, in my opinion. Uh, now, I I think the the strength everyone wanted to talk about this year coming in was the defensive line, uh, which is highlighted by Patrick Johnson. He was Phil Steele's pre uh, preseason defensive player of the year pick, uh, coming off the end. Basically, he's in what's called the Joker position. Uh, he's just a an elite athlete, uh, and he's he's so destructive, and so teams have to really watch out for him. But then you have other guys in that line like Cam Sample who have done a really great job. One thing that I think is a question mark going into this game is the status of nose tackle Jeffrey Johnson. Uh, he was banged up after the Houston game a couple weeks ago. We didn't see him in any snaps in the Army game last week. But uh, with him in the middle, uh, he was actually a guy who was recruited by a lot of high major SEC schools. And ultimately, uh, with his recruiting process taking a little bit of a weird path, he ends up coming to Tulane and he he looks the part. Uh, you know, against Auburn, I think that was a highlight game for him where Auburn had one of the the slowest offensive games that they've had this season, and I think their inability to run the ball up the middle was a big factor. So we're certainly hopeful that he's going to be healthy soon for this big AAC stretch. All right. Well, you got a soft landing this week at least. Maybe work out some kinks against this UConn team. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's I think it's exciting to see the AAC work out in a in a way for for some programs uh, along those lines. It's turned out not to work out so well for UConn, and this is our farewell tour. So uh, moving on to the fun part of looking back on the illustrious tackle football history of Tulane and UConn. Uh, JP, as, oh, you no. look back <laughs> over, <laughs> as you look back over the years, there have been some really, really memorable games. Um, certainly not for the, the quality of play, but for um, you know just pretty unique scores and general displays of ineptitude and... Um, including uh, Bob Diaco's final game as head coach. But uh, what is your favorite dumbest memory about this rivalry, this football rivalry that uh, the AAC created for, for the world? Not even a question. And, and I think it's burned into the, the memories of every Tulane fan. It's one that you'll tell your grandchildren about. So while the Yukon, you know, the, the Yukon Tulane rivalry might be coming to an end, I think it's going to live on in spirit. And that of course is the 2015 homecoming game when UConn came to New Orleans. And if anybody is just, it's coming out of the fog of memory, let me give you a couple of facts about this game. It was Tulane's homecoming, uh, you know, a, a time of merriment, a time of optimism. And instead, it was a freezing cold game with like pouring rain. Uh, and on top of that, Tulane's offensive ineptitude was hitting an all-time high, we'll put it. And so in this game, what was truly incredible is that the Huskies managed to get that homecoming win on their opponent's turf, and they did it in style. It was a 7-3 game. There were no offensive touchdowns. The only Huskies points came off of a pick six thrown by uh, Tanner Lee, a quarterback at Tulane who uh, never really found his footing and then went to Nebraska and didn't really find his footing. And still, he got drafted in the sixth round by the Jaguars a couple years ago. So football's crazy like that. Uh, but it was a brutal game, and and for me, that's it. But Amon, what what about you? What are there any special uh, Tulane memories that you know you're taking away? Se seven to three, actually, it, it, that is the one. You know, the the one true game uh, to rule them all. For me, um, there was the other one. I think it was. Were they? I don't have it pulled up right in front of me, but they were. 
there was like a 12 to 9 or a 12 to 7 game or something like that. Uh, but but the, the correct answer is 7 to 3. And then the other answer is just kind of um, putting, that, putting that exclamation point on what was absolutely, certainly, hopefully, Bob Diaco's last game as head coach. Um, it was kind of a helpless feeling because everyone assumed – Everyone assumed UConn would be uh, keeping him, Diaco, because uh, of the contract situation. And, you know, Tulane, not having its best year, uh, goes out and hangs like 38 on, on a, just a completely hapless UConn team. So I think it's one of those things where it's like if there was any fan support for Bob Diaco, uh, it, you killed out the last of it on, on that day. So uh, thank you for that. That was, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think there's two things that, that immediately came to mind with seven to three. And I, I wish I had it up right now. So you're gonna have to take my word for it. I think the USA Today headline was the night that offensive innovation died. And it was <laughs> a picture of that or, or something equally bleak. I'm like, it was like the night I, I lost my passion for college football. And I'm like, I'm just really glad that UConn and Tulane were able to provide uh, that kind of insight to people. But the, the game you mentioned, which is 2016, that was Coach Willie Fritz's uh, first year, actually. He just, you know, the, the situation that he inherited and he was moving from what was kind of a New Orleans Saints imitation passing offense to a triple option oriented team. The end result of that was that there were like no quarterbacks. Um, so there was one guy who stayed from the previous year. Uh, Darius Bradwell, who was our current like starting running back, was actually one of the quarterbacks this year. And and so <laughs> it was just Fritz trying to kind of start things. And what I remember about that is, of course, that Diaco was fired after that game, I think a month later when his contract officially rolled over to the next year. But it was like the last time, or at least I thought it was, which ended up being true, that if you lost to Tulane, your head coach got fired. And there was a there was a tradition of that. Uh, Tony Levine at Houston, he lost to Houston, uh, he lost to Tulane, gets fired. I mean, it was like a thing. And I was like, you know what? This is probably the last time because after this, I think people are going to recognize that Fritz is, you know, a, a very high quality coach, uh, and it won't be a fireable offense. And you know, it's nice living in that world now, in my opinion. Well, yeah. So um, along those lines, uh, speaking of of Willie Fritz, I wouldn't let you off without asking it. It's so, of course, Willie Fritz, pretty widely documented as someone who may be looking for a new job after the success of this season. Um, how, how are you, uh, coping with that possibility? Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've reflected on that a little bit. I think the bigger story this week was around Cincy and Luke fickle. I think he came up in a couple reports, maybe for the Illinois job. And I was, I was thinking about this in two lane terms because we haven't seen as many. Uh, I, I think I've seen one flyer from Bruce Feldman where he's like, you know, this could be a good coach for Rutgers. I'm like, no, dude, no one is a good coach for Rutgers. Rutgers should no. have a player manager like it's like 1920s baseball. Um, they would love that. They would. That's, Did that's, you know football was invented there? Oh, is that a new? Yeah. Who who could forget? Yeah, it's incredible that UCF invented the moon and Rutgers invented football. And those are the two <laughs> great accomplishments of those institutions. So here's how I reckon with this. Because I, I if this season goes the way that Tulane fans think it's going to go, then every one of those lists where it's like, who are the who are the hot G5 names who could be moving up to the P5? Uh, he should be on it. He's, he's an incredible coach. He's built a culture here. He has reinvigorated a two-lane program that was absolutely dead as a doornail uh, for basically 20 years through just ineptitude and, and bad decision-making and everything under the sun. 
the way that I deal with that though is like if if you if you are a mid major, you know, even if this is the highest G five, if you're in this position, you gotta be able to live in the moment. You know, if 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 your team gets good after being bad for twenty years and and you look at that and you're like, well, you know, the thing that I have anxiety about is is losing the coach, you're never gonna get a chance to be happy. It just doesn't come around that often. And so yeah. the the way that I am personally approaching this is that I do expect there are teams that are going to make a run. I think it's definitely a possibility that he could be in a new job. And I think there are teams that definitely have the capability to back up the money truck. What I would say is that there was some good foresight from Troy Dan and our athletic director. Uh, he gave Fritz an extension after that five and seven season when Tulane was literally like an inch and a half away from beating SMU and making it to a bowl game. He gives Fritz an extension then with an updated buyout. And a lot of people are like, why would you extend a coach who just won five games? And it's like, no, we, we know where this is going. Um, so mm -hmm. we'll see where that goes. I think that if Fritz uh, makes a move this year, and, and I've, I have no perspective on, on whether it happened or not, but you know, I think the culture is just in so much of a better place that uh, there actually could be people you know, looking at the offensive and defensive coordinators of, the, of, of this current team who could be the next guy, whereas before the way that you left your job at Tulane football was you would then go be a coordinator for an NFL team. So this is new territory for us. Right. Of course. I, you know, I think that's a very uh, principled way to look at it. Of, you know, if your head coach leaves because your team is doing well, it's a, it's ultimately a good problem to have. And one that a lot of teams around the league would be uh, particularly towards the bottom of the league would be, would be really excited to have. And the other thing is that it's just so hard to get that talent, like you mentioned with, with Willie Fritz. It's just so hard to get that talent level up. So to have that makes it a more attractive job to other coaches, even even if one should leave. Totally. Um, and it's like you, from being bad that long, there are all these repercussions. And it actually took Fritz a couple of years, I think, to break through them. And, and he's talked about this, where there are schools that, you know, if you're going to be gone in, in three years because everyone knows you're going to get fired they're not sending their top level talent to you. You don't have that local buy-in. And when Fritz took the job, I can remember some of the national media folks saying, well, there goes his career. He's going to the Bermuda Triangle of college football. And, and I don't think it's, it's like the craziest thing in the world they said that, but if there were a coaching search this year or next year for Tulane, I don't think anyone really can look at it like that. Now it's like, okay, he's proven you can do it. And it just sets you up in a different territory, I think. So um, we'll see how it goes. But I, I, I always tell Tulane fans, you can't be afraid of winning. You know, that's, that's the most important thing that I think Tulane can do at this stage. Right. What are you hoping? He wins enough for you to be above 500, but not enough to <laughs> capture the attention of the Power Five. Would that be better for you? What a weird, um, what a weird thing. People are like, yeah, you know, maybe hoping they'll end up in, you know, the Birmingham Bowl or something so they don't they don't get that call. It's just it's this is the reality of 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 how this sport is and and if you can't live with this part of it, I don't know if how Yukon fans feel about Temple. I feel like you guys don't have the same relationship as like with the Syracuse or a Rutgers, but uh I think Temple like they they keep their coaches for a year. They're like they're like uh the one-hit wonder capital of college football and they keep winning seven or eight games every year. It's crazy. They're like the old Cincinnati back when they were just yes. cycling through dudes who just won nine or ten games and 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 in two years got a P five job until the the Tuberville train stopped that. But um, no, I mean in that you know I think for UConn fans don't look at Temple and go oh man wish that was us just you know because it's Temple sure yeah but, but I I think you know they are 
they've done tremendous for themselves and you have to really, you know, give them a lot of credit. And, um, I think just the guys that they've been able to bring in, I know, I know they only had Manny Diaz for a minute, but even just to get that signed and delivered, you know, it just shows the respect that that job has at this point that, you know, it didn't have 12 years ago when they got kicked out of the big East. So, um, yeah, you know, good, good things happen when you win games and, and, uh, Again, we can we can just give you one perspective from the UConn fans is, you know, back when we had Diaco, it was like that, you know, and there was, <laughs> believe it or not, there was this concern about Bob Diaco after the bowl season was, you know, what about next year? What about all this? What you know where he might go? UConn actually uh, extended him during, uh, or sorry, right right before what would turn out to be his final season. So. Um, you know, good, uh, good problem to have. I, I'll throw out my guess. I think, I think Virginia Tech is going to make uh, a play. Uh, they are, um, they are looking like they're going to make a change, and I think, uh, you know, culturally that might be a good fit. But that's that is, of course, zero sourcing, zero, zero advanced knowledge. Just, um, just me throwing out a name. My perspective, and again, this isn't based on knowing anything because I don't, but. For me, if I were in his shoes, I'll, I'll say it that way. He, because uh, he he's an older coach. I, I think the reality is he probably only has p- potentially one rebuild or, or one kind of longer period to to build up a program. So if I'm in his shoes, like that's why when Feldman was talking about Rutgers, I'm like, this isn't the job you take to get fired in three years, right? It's like no. if an Arkansas comes calling, right, and they're like, look, Chad Morris didn't work out. You have deep experience. You've been a head, you've been a JUCO coach in Arkansas before. You now have this success at at Tulane, really recruiting across the Southeast. That has a lot of value. Um, so you know, it, there's so many different factors, and and that's why my perspective is, I would just kind of uh, you know take that and put that on one other side, and and you know, if Tulane wins enough to be in that conversation, so be it. But the winning thing has to happen first. Right. Yeah. And again, net net, good, good outcome for the school. So and. Hey, maybe you get a like with Temple, you get a scheduling arrangement out of it or something with the the team that coach. So. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's that's when you know Temple when they have a coach leave, it's not even like a thing. They've got like the auto responses set up in yeah. Gmail. They're like, all right, so uh, here you go, Miami. Here is your new contract with us. You're going to be doing a home and home that UCF would never get, and uh, <laughs> it's like boilerplate. They're just they've they've perfected this system. It's impressive to me. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. No, I, I agree. They've done a good job. They, they have, um, you know, they have a pretty good talent pool over there too, with Philly and New Jersey and, uh, even Delaware to some extent. Uh, it's a, uh, don't, don't sleep on that Northeast talent pool, but, um, they've been able to do really well for themselves. And I think, you know, something that's, uh, a good, good story for the AAC, but again, kind of does speak to the ceiling because it's not like Temple makes any waves nationally in either sport. Uh, men's basketball or, or football, despite being really solid in both. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's a fair assessment for sure. So we'll we'll leave you with a quick. Uh, would love to get your quick take on on basketball for this upcoming season. How are Tulane men's and women's hoops looking? Wow. Okay. So it's it's interesting because uh, people probably would guess this after the absolute clunker that we had last year, uh, which basically beat out all the optimism and hope that we had for the Mike Dunleavy era, uh, which, you know, to be honest with you, it's people always look back in hindsight's 2020. I liked the Dunleavy hire. I thought that it was different. It was doing something that was counter to maybe some of the norms, which I think is how 
You know, if you're a, a struggling program or one that doesn't have a recent track record of success, I think that's one of the more surefire ways to shake things up. And ultimately, you know, the the development wasn't there. The ability to recruit high-level prospects wasn't as high as maybe some people had hoped. And so credit to, to Troy Dannon. I think he made a, a smart move because he, I think, knew he had somebody he could go get. Um, people might be aware of this, but Ron Hunter, who, of course, was the Georgia State coach for uh, many years. He was at IUPUI and took that team to the tournament before it was at Georgia State. He's a cool dude, guys. Uh, he's I mean, we haven't seen any games yet. And on top of that, we had like 11 transfers and it's basically a team of like grad transfers. It's it's going to be wild. It's <laughs> like, dude, there's names in this team. Do you know KJ Lawson plays for remember KJ Lawson, like four star guy goes to Memphis. His dad gets hired at Memphis. Um, is that Tulane now? He's a Tulane now. Yeah, he went to Kansas and then he's grad transferred to Tulane. Dude, oh, right, this is right. I, I I'm telling you, I'm not saying that Tulane is is NCAA tournament bound. Although Ron Hunter did, he said that is his expectation for this year, despite being ranked 12th in the preseason poll. He has put together this island of misfit toys, and he's going to bring like some swagger and some attitude to this team. I, I think that if anybody can make Tulane basketball successful, and I don't know that this is the year. But I, I, I'm trusting the process on this one. I'm excited to see where this one goes. Does that sound fair? It's a good idea. And well, I will say, as as we uh, s- send you off, I will say that UConn has always been an advocate for do all tournaments in New Orleans, not freaking Orlando or Dickey's Arena. Uh, make it somewhere fun so people want to go. You know what? I I don't think I let me let me give a parting shot here for. Uh... For our UConn friends, I, I think in this respect, there's some criticisms that UConn fans make against the AAC that I look at and I'm like, I don't know, but uh, this is a good one. I mean, what what are you what are you doing, right? You have a world class city for hosting events that people would travel to, and you're putting these games. You know, you're sending people to Orlando. It, it's just like, man, do something interesting. And, and the SEC's been there before, which it's a great time when they do that. I think that's a big missed opportunity. Um, obviously, one part of it, because it seems like the AAC is so focused on on trying to put it, you know, by a team that could be successful. Uh, it, I wish Tulane basketball would have been in better shape then to do some hosting. But uh, you know, there will be NCAA tournament games in the future, and and I'm sure that uh, you guys will get more opportunities down the road to to come to the city and see what's up. All right. Well, JP, thank you for the insight. We'll be excited to catch up with you again during basketball season. Uh, Please go easy on us this weekend, and then good luck with the rest of the season. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you all for listening.